Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on in our museum. Today, you're listening to, well, just me. My name is Sarah Nixon, public programmer at the St. Catharines Museum. I would like to begin by saying that we are recording today's podcast at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center, and that we honor and acknowledge that this land is part of the traditional territory of the Neutrals, Haudenosaunee, and Anishinaabe's people and their allies, and is adjacent to the Six Nations of the Grand River. This is the first in a series of episodes that details the fallen workers of the Welland Canal. For many years, a great amount of research has been conducted by many people to gather, record, and preserve the stories of the 137 men who died building the fourth Welland Canal. We hope that this series can be a platform for us to share the stories of these men and as well to gain insight into the construction of this great national object as the canal was known. Today's podcast will act as a sort of general introduction to the history of the fallen workers. We will visit some of the major themes that have come up through the vast research done on their lives and their deaths. And to do so, I've invited a very special guest on today's episode. Des Corin is a longtime volunteer docent at the St. Catharines Museum and sits on the board of the St. Catharines Historical Society. Des is also extremely well-researched in the stories of the fallen workers and is currently working on a project researching the burial sites of each of the 137 men killed in the building of the 4th Welland Canal. Again, this is a project that could not be completed without the efforts of many others. Des, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sarah. Glad to be here. (laughs) Awesome. On Sunday, November 12th, 2017, an 85-year-old promise to honor 137 men who died building one of the greatest engineering marvels in Canada was fulfilled with the unveiling of the Welland Canal's Fallen Workers Memorials right here in St. Catharines. For those that have visited the memorial, I invite you now to keep an image of this in your mind as you're listening to the stories we share on this podcast today. For those that haven't, I strongly encourage you to visit soon. The memorial marks the completion of years of research and fundraising conducted by the Niagara community. And this includes elected representatives, historians, the marine industry, labor industry, local media, and volunteers. And all of these people are committed to fulfilling this 85-year-old promise. Out of this research and work has also come a number of valuable community projects committed to bringing these men's stories to the public and honoring their lives. A weekly newspaper series was published detailing the lives of each of these 137 men. A series of cemetery tours were offered in the summer of 2017. The Essential Collective Theatre produced the Welland Canal play. Numerous special exhibitions were displayed in community spaces across Niagara. Kirkpatrick monuments donated gravestones for the fallen workers buried in unmarked graves. And these are just a select few examples of the incredible way that the Niagara community has come together to honor these men. We hope that this podcast is a small part to contribute to these immense efforts. 
So I've invited Des here today to help us understand why the Fallen Workers Memorial is so significant by sharing some of the research that has been conducted on the lives and deaths of the men who died building the canal. The stories of the fallen workers are quite complex, and to truly understand the tragedy of their deaths, we must draw on issues of class, ethnicity, workers' rights, and workplace safety in the early 20th century. Today's podcast will be the first in a series about the fallen workers, and as such, today we'll cover a broader range of topics and stories as we set up for our series. Des, to start off our conversation, could you give us a brief overview of the building of the Fourth Welland Canal and the history around the Fallen Workers Memorial? Sure, Sarah. As you've already pointed out, it's taken 85 years to fulfill the promise made on the opening day uh, of the canal in 1932 to honor these fallen workers. It was made by Minister Mannion, who was at that time the uh, Minister of Railroads and Canals. Of those 137 deaths, which occurred over a 19-year period starting in 1914 through 1932, their deaths were diminished only because World War I took place during that period with its horrific death toll. And that overshadowed what happened here in Niagara. The canals was built in eight sections, first section being Port Weller, number eight being Port Colburn. In between the others, actually, uh, section one ran to approximately Linwell Road, number two from there to just beyond the Glendale Bridge, and number three through the flight locks and lock seven. Of those three sections, they had the highest percentage of death compared to the others. There were 137 men, and all of them were men, who lost their lives in the building of the Welland Canal. In honoring these men, it is so important for us to recognize and to really think about these men as ordinary people. They were someone's father, son, husband, friend, neighbor. And I want us to spend some time getting to know who they were. What were their stories? So let's begin with getting to know their nationalities. Can we find trends in where these men were born? Well, of the 137, 48 were actually Canadian, and there was one from Newfoundland. If you break down all the others, 23 were born in Italy, 14 England, 9 Scotland, 8 Hungary, 6 in Ireland, 5 each in Russia and Austria, 4 in USA, 3 in Ukraine and Yugoslavia, 2 in Poland, 1 each in Finland, Sweden, India, and there are 4 unknowns. Now, off those numbers, or off those countries, India is most interesting because Richard McAllister was born in India, even though his mother and father were American citizens. His dad was the ambassador to India. That's why he was born there. Now, Richard is really unique in that he came back to the United States. He was educated and became a grad at Harvard, and, of course, then worked and ultimately was drowned in an accident at Port Colburn. Wow. 
That's a really interesting story about where all of these men were from. They're quite from quite a diverse range of countries around the world. Is there any trends between immigration and and employment when it comes to the canal? Like, what was bringing all of these people to build the canal? Well, I think the world changed after World War One, which probably added to it. Obviously, there was unemployment, and later in the construction, there was the Great Depression. So anywhere that you could go in the world to find employment was a plus. If you notice that all the countries, there's none from the Far East, they're all Europe. And even there, there's some question as to the actual country, because after World War I, so many countries' borders were changed. Uh, so I don't think there's any definitive thing other than the world as we knew it at that time. Uh, come to Canada, get a job, earn a living, and in a lot of cases send ultimately for your wife and children to join you. Uh, with 137 deaths, were there any major accidents? Well, there were probably not too many really large numbers, but one incident, August 1, 1928 at Lock 6, Eight men were killed on that day. Two died on August the 3rd from, from injuries sustained that day. There were actually 40 men working on that site at that time, and an additional 22 were injured. So if you add that up, you're talking 32 either dead or injured out of a total of 40. Uh, what happened was the um, gate actually collapsed and fell to the floor of, of the of the lock, and that's, it was just a matter of a great mass of steel falling on all these people. Interestingly enough, of, of all that group, there was one combination of father-son. Uh, that they were the uh, MacArthur's, James and James Campbell. Uh, and I'm going to digress just a little bit. Whenever we're talking about fathers and sons, there were two other incidents. Uh, in August the 1st, ironically, the same day, only three years earlier, 1925, Elzar and Lionel Lynch were killed at Lock 4 when a uh, shackle snapped while a, a lowering operation was underway. And in Port Colborne in 1929, two... Uh, Men from the Bassett family, Fernley and William, were both killed at Bridge 20, although not at the same time. One died in April, the other in October. Were there any other patterns or common causes of other accidents and deaths? Well, we have to understand that the safety standards that we all know and totally accept and expect today didn't exist back then. It looks like drowning was probably the single uh, biggest number, and that in a way probably goes to equipment. Uh, men didn't have uh, uh, life jackets back in the day that they would have worn on site. The second biggest group was probably falls into the lock or falls from a high place, be it a bridge or the lock. And there, if you think about today, if you don't ever drive past a, a construction site that you don't see safety rails. They didn't exist back then. Another big item was railroads. And right off the bat, you think, hang on, this is with a canal and ships. It's nothing to do with trains. Wrong. Trains were a significant part of, of, of the construction of the canals. And they had what was called dump cars, where they moved equipment, they moved stone, sand, whatever was necessary. 
and the safety aspect just didn't exist. People were not aware of if they were on the track, you had a potential to be hit, and in a lot of cases, that's exactly what happened. And another one was men being electrocuted. We weren't totally tuned in to the dangers of electricity back in the day, and uh, that, that was another factor. Now, in addition to all those, there were some really unusual and what we would almost say as freak accidents. John Hawthorne, for example, right here, just outside our building, October 18, 1932, he was working in a ditch. They were installing 36-inch pipe and a culvert where the third canal press crosses over to, uh, where we are today, right about where the right about where the ball hockey building is. And he was down in the trench working. They were unloading these, this pipe from a rail car above. Whenever a piece of wood, like three foot six long, which isn't particularly long, only 15 inch thick, fell from the from the car. It rolled down the hill. He saw it coming and dived into a hole, but his head was still sticking up, hit on the head and killed. Oh my that gosh. has to be freak. Another oh one gosh. right another one right here at the canal. Thomas Lindsay, August 25, 1924. He was listed as a as an engineer, uh, a locomotive engineer. And the details are unclear, but apparently there was an explosion on the other side of the lock from where he was. He couldn't have been in the cab of his train. He had to be outside. From that explosion, large clumps of clay came flying, hit him in the chest, which wasn't considered total, uh, normally fatal, but he uh, suffered internal injuries, and he died two days later. Just weird, unusual accidents, but still all added to, to the despair of what happened here. Mm -hmm. I have a couple uh, questions I want to draw from, from that. So, um, of course, like the, what, you're, what we're saying are freak accidents. Like, I feel like those are in a lot of ways unavoidable. And we see a lot of trends of that happening today in many workplaces. When we're talking about drownings or electrocution... Um, or accidents involving trains, um, you mentioned a lot that maybe the workers weren't trained in workplace safety, or maybe those regulations or rules regarding workplace safety and workers' rights weren't really practiced then. Did what happened on the Fourth Welland Canal, did that kind of spur any movements towards building workplace safety and issues around that? I'm sure there's no doubt of that. This was a federal government project, so it wasn't a private enterprise. This was public money organized and promoted by the government, so therefore it had much more uh, attention attached to it. I think from what happened here, a lot of our labor laws that exist today in Ontario particularly when it comes to electricity or, or like I mentioned, uh, safety rails and, and general training all came as a result of. Now, at the same time, mankind are, are here in this part of the world, we have changed too in that we've become more cognizant of, of the potentials that existed before. And uh, I think, give our government's credit, they have enacted laws which basically protect us all. Mm-hmm. My, my other question is because you mentioned about who, when we were talking about who these men were, 
you mentioned how many different countries they were coming from, right? A lot um, from like Eastern Europe and not English speaking countries. Do you think that language barriers had anything to do with the accidents that occurred and the deaths that, had, that occurred? Well, there's no doubt. There's even some cases where if you look at the inquest, the foreman on the site or the supervisor on the site didn't even know the man's name. He just had a number. Oh, my goodness. And that, that, that's recorded in a couple of cases where they, they just didn't know. Once again, language, uh, very much an issue. And back in the day, I, I guess uh, manual labor was, was uh, not considered what it is today. When you talk about ethnics and whatnot, a story comes to mind of Rocco Ionese. Came from Italy, got a job in the canal. We're talking 1924, 1925. He had a wife and two sons still in Italy. Saved his money, sent money home. In February of 1925, his wife, Elisabetta, came to Canada with their two sons. Two sons, one was named Rocco, funny about that, and Antonio. Now, that was February of 25. July the 31st of 25, Rocco was killed in a train accident not very far from this building. And that in itself, if you think about it, but this tragedy goes on from there. Elisabetta gave birth in November to two more boys who also died. So if you want to put that in context with today, here you have a, a lady who can't speak the English, came from a foreign country, became pregnant, has two boys already, has two more, loses a husband, loses two sons in the space of a few months. You have to consider that totally resilient. Now, to give her full credit, she remarried a man by the name of Stefano Lacoli and um, had two more children after that. Rocco was buried along with his two boys, in Lakeview Cemetery in Thorold. Oh my goodness. So here we have this family that are like new to Canada. What support systems do they have when she comes here and she loses her partner and sons? What else can, can you draw from in your research about um, what impacts these deaths have had on the surviving families? Well, to, to continue on that vein, we look at another case, uh, not, not an immigrant, somebody born here in Grantham, William Gordon. William Gordon and his wife had nine sons and two daughters. That may sound by today's standard a lot, but back in the day probably wasn't so unusual. Of his nine sons, five of them died before him. Oh my goodness. Three of them died, one in May, one in June, one in July of 1921. Wow. His wife died of TB in 1922. So here you have in 1922, he's already lost five sons and a wife. He died, died. He was killed November 2, no, November 9, 1924, leaving his other six children orphans. Now, the youngest was five years old, so that little girl had seen three of her brothers die, and her mother die, and her father die in her lifetime, and she was only five. Oh, my gosh. So whenever you look at that, and this was not an immigrant. This was a, a family that uh, Gordon was born in Grantham. Uh, when you put that in perspective, 
and you see all the things that we have today, and we know that back then they had little comp to compare with, that f those kids stuck together because the oldest was in the early 20s, and those kids survived. Mm -hmm. So there's something about the, the resilience of people, period, of that time. Absolutely. That's such a good point about the support systems that we have in place now didn't exist during the early 20th century for such cases, right? So really, you have to think about these families coming together and having to go through these tragedies on their own. A lot of cases it turned out to be uh, lodges or the Masonic or, or the Moose, Order of the Moose, groups like that that actually pitched in to help. Wow. And I think we see that from here from time to time. Just, just this uh, monument, the fact that people locally contributed to it, shows that we still have that. But I think back in the day, we didn't have Twitter. We didn't have all the things that we have today, depending on the person you know uh, added to your willingness to, they didn't have a lot to give, but they were more willing to do that than possibly we are today. You mentioned uh, a bit earlier about Lakeview Cemetery. Are there any other fallen workers buried there? Oh, interesting. Uh, if you take Lakeview, to answer your question first, there's 22 buried there. There's 45 in Victoria Lawn. But if you take the major cemeteries here in Niagara, Lakeview, Victoria Lawn, Font Hill, Holy Cross in Welland, Overholt in uh, Port Colburn, and Mount St. Joseph, collectively, they all add up to 99. Now, if you take the total 137 that died, and you check that back out, you'll find that there's a total of 38 cemeteries um, here where they're born. Now, I won't make that where they were died, where they're buried. <laughs> two in New Brunswick, four in Nova Scotia, two in Quebec, Three in the United States, one in New Jersey, one in Pennsylvania, one in New York State. All the rest are pretty well singles, uh, and they're spread throughout Ontario, from uh, Ottawa on one side to Windsor on the other. If you throw in all the others, you have Palmerston, Mount Hope, Windsor, Guelph, Stainer, Collingwood, Midland, Port Perry, Etobicoke, two separate ones in Toronto, and here in this area, we have Ridgeville, Waynefleet, there's one in Port Colburn, Port Dalhousie, two in Niagara Falls, uh, Pelham, Waynefleet. Uh, so that pretty well covers the full 137. But the fact is, there's 38 cemeteries where mm -hmm. these men have been, are all buried. Um, so you've been doing all of this research in finding the burial sites of these men. Why is that so important? Well, it's, it's like... Every one of these 137 men is a story. And this is the final chapter, their resting place. It sort of ties together. In some cases, it points where they came from, but it also ties it together that the family has come to understand and the family is in, in a lot of cases, they're in family plots. Like there's, there's like several other family members built, buried in the same area. So it, it's just sort of ties the whole thing together. Mm -hmm. all, all 137 are, are interesting and unusual, and whenever you really analyze it, should have been avoidable accidents. Mm -hmm. But th this somehow, that makes it even more dramatic that we should know 
where they actually ended up. Mm -hmm. We have become way more aware of that in Canada. Look at the Highway of Heroes after what happened in Afghanistan. Right. We're totally, but we, we, it's just my little way of trying to piece them together and, and make the, the final chapter of the story. Absolutely. I can't thank you enough for coming in to share your research and insights. And I think I can speak for all of our listeners when I say that we very much look forward to learning more about the fallen workers' stories and their impact on our community. And this is such a critical part of our history to recognize and honor. So thank you. I do have one final question, and this is just to entertain more of a rumor that I've heard recently. Someone told me a story about a body being buried in a lock wall. Um, is this true, and what can you tell us about this story? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, because I was asked that during a tour here oh, a few weeks ago by a professor from one of our better-known universities. And I had heard this years ago, but had discounted it. It just didn't make sense. But after being asked by a professor, I decided I have to find out if there's any possible connection here. So I did a little research, and I, I, I pieced together what is strictly could be. This is not fact, but this is what could be. So if we look at Richard B. Gardner, born in Nova Scotia, a little place called Mapleton. And if no, most people aren't aware of Mapleton because it's not even on the map anymore. <laughs> it is just two miles over from Spring Hill. So going through Spring Hill uh, Historical Society and going through the Diocese of uh, Cumberland County, I pieced together he's buried in, in a uh, cemetery which was beside a church in Mapleton. Now, the story there is that he had half-brothers, one by the name of John L. L. Stevens, who lived here in Thorold. John L. L. encouraged his younger half-brother, Richard, to come work on the canal, which he did, and he was killed in a train accident. Now, Richard uh, was obviously taken back to Nova Scotia and buried there. John L. L. was so shaken that whenever his son was born in 1918, he called him Richard Gardner Stevens. And ironically, Richard Gardner Stevens was killed in action in Italy during World War II. Mm. Now, John L. had two other brothers uh, who also worked on the canal. And those brothers, one was called Wilford, one was called Walter. They thought it would be a cute idea if they nailed a pair of boots on the forms to, that they were putting in place to be filled with cement and make the lock wall. When they removed the forms later, the boots were found. And from that, it seems that's a plausible understanding of where the story came from. Actually, Wilfred and Walter were both fired when it was figured out <laughs> that they were not uh, that they, it was a prank. If, if we want to tie it together with a possibility of truth, that would be where it comes in. It was really a joke which got out of hand, and there many times have people seen jokes that get out of hand, and from that it grew, or, and then it disappeared, and then it came back. So obviously the fact that a prof would ask the question, it's still out there, uh, there's no real proof. Wow, that's super interesting. 
Well, I guess we heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Jez, thank you so much. We look forward to having you back to talk more about the fallen workers. Uh, thank you again. Oh, you're, more, you're more than welcome. Glad to be here. That's it for this episode of Museum Chat Live. This podcast was produced by Sarah Nixon with special thanks to Des Corin for sharing his research and knowledge. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and the Welland Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines.